You're listening to the Gateway Franklin Church Podcast. To learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, including our service times here in Franklin, Tennessee, visit us online at gatewayfranklin.com. And now, here is this week's message. Maybe the first time you breathe, breathe this week. We sing and exalt and worship. Um, I say this a lot around here that, that worship is, uh, it, it's a, it reorients our, our life. Um, yes, the Sabbath is a very important day. Um, it's a celebration of the resurrection of Christ, so it is a celebration of new life. Um, celebrate the Sabbath. The Lord tells us that it's a day of rest, um, but it's a day of reset. They've reset. Worship is the great resetter. Reminds us that um, we're not in the center. Everything swirling around us is not the center. He's the center. James says it this way in James 1, 17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created every good and perfect gift, even, even the good stuff, everything in our life, he is the center of. We open up his word today. We open up his speech to us. We depend on, just as the Holy Spirit inspired the writers that they were, uh, history says they were, and they were moved, moved, uh, moved by the Holy Spirit as they were moved along by the Holy Spirit. And we still depend on the Holy Spirit today than to take what has been written to illuminate, illuminate it in our lives today. And I pray that the case. So just, we'll just pause one more time for prayer. I know Pastor Chris has prayed us kind of out of conclusion of worship, but Father, I, I pray for the illumination of your word. Lord, that it would, it would come off the page. It would be, it would be life-giving. Lord, this is what you've infused in it. So I speak against the, 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 the negative influences, the, the negative uh, thoughts that go through our mind, uh, the, the still pain of the week, maybe a pain of a lifetime, still circling back, trying to, trying to wrestle its way back to the surface. And may your word not stuff it down, may it eradicate it in the name of Jesus today. We depend on you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you're not familiar with the term self-talk, you're, you're probably familiar with the concept. Um, you know, hearing yourself talk to yourself. A simple definition is talk or thoughts directed to oneself. Um, a more fleshed out definition I want to read to you coming out of um, psychologytoday.com. said, many people are conscious of an inner voice that provides a running monologue on their lives throughout the day. This inner voice or self-talk combining conscious thoughts and unconscious beliefs and biases provides a way for the brain to interpret and process daily experiences. Our self-talk can be cheerful and supportive or negative and self-defeating. Self-talk can be beneficial when it's positive, calming fears and bolstering confidence. Human nature, unfortunately, is prone to negative self-talk including sweeping assertions like, I can't do anything right, and I'm a complete failure. So the fuel of that definition, really, it really hangs on two particular pieces. One, 
says unconscious beliefs and biases, and the other is human nature. So unconscious beliefs and biases would come from sustained input over time. And so that could be sustained good input, it could be sustained negative input, but our unconscious thoughts come from sustained input over time. Human nature, I think you could probably say that that's something that's been hardwired into us. And I would agree uh, with their definition uh, of self-talk because they both align themselves with Scripture. Pastor Chris Clayton used Psalm 1 as the opening of our summer series, uh, Summer in the Psalms, and here are the first three verses of that psalm. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. See, it's addressing, this, these three verses, is addressing sustained input. See, we, we live and walk in culture. If you, um, if you do not think culture impacts you, you're mistaken, all right? We, we can't offset, we can't offset everything that goes on in culture because we spend 75 minutes on church on a Sunday morning. <laughs> I remember growing up working at the station, my, my, dad, had, um, my dad had a rule. He, he wanted all the employees not to cuss around me. It was kind of funny because most of my dad's employees were um, military. They were Air Force guys. And, um, and I said, Dad, I, I can handle it. Dad, I can handle it. Man, I remember one particular day, um, I had set a wrench on, on the lift, and I was taking out the bolt to check the um, gear oil in the back of this pickup truck. And I turned around, I turned, and I walked straight into a tire. Now, rubber, you might think rubber is a soft substance. <laughs> An inflated rubber tire is not a soft substance. And out of my mouth came unexplicable things. <laughs> and I went like, where did that come from? It was, my, it was who I was around, what was going on, right? It was sustained. In, now, fortunately, um, you know, th there, was, there was more sustained input in other, other places, but that's my, my point, that, that, that culture, it does, it's why we, have, we had foot washing in the New Testament. You know, it's, it's the idea that maybe Jesus told Peter, hey, you're already clean, but your feet are dirty. Right? You walked over here with, a sandal, with sandals on. There's a, there's a necessity for being washed again. So, so culture has a way... Of, of immersing us in things that we don't want to be immersed in. And so that's why this verse contrasts. It says, don't, don't sit in the way. Don't stand in the way. Don't, don't make your way with sinners and mockers and the culture, if you will, but, but delight and meditate on the word of God. So that makes sense to me that sustained input over time will impact our self-talk, all right? Then he says human nature. And the, the person who gives the definition says that human nature um, is... is, is leans more negative. Who talks negatively to yourself? Raise your hand. Yeah, I'm, so I'm on point, right? So, so, so where does that come from? Where does that hardwiring, because we were created in the image of God, ah, but sin corrupted that nature. So it takes the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ to 
Give us a new nature, in in essence, to rewire us, to put things back the way they were. And depending on where you, how old you were or what your experiences were before you came to Christ really is the stuff that has to be kind of unlearned and and, and rewired because now you you should have input that's different than the input that came came into. And all this impacts kind of how we talk to ourselves. Listen, self-talk is real. It's not just a psychotic episode. Um, This is a real thing that real people deal with on a regular basis. It impacts our emotions, the quality of our lives. It impacts what we will produce in our life. And and I believe that this psalm that we're going to do today will help us impact what, what I'm calling hope talk. That, that we, would, we would move out of just the psychology that's true about how we talk to ourselves and how it impacts ourselves with what the Word of God says and how the Word of God helps us navigate really, really who we are and who God is um, and uh, the deep transformation that can come from his, from his Word. Now, I didn't know that there was a thing like this to years later, but um, I, I've heard this term, life verse. You familiar with, some of you may be familiar with life. Who, who has a verse of scripture that you would say, that, that's what you use? You use, say life verse. Anybody? Life verse. All right, Blake, what's your life verse? Okay, which is? This is the never sit close. Court, you knew this, but you're circling back. Court, court never volunteers anymore. He's been 10, 10, 12 years with me. Come on. I know Blake. It doesn't have to be perfect, Blake. Um, it's, Paul said it, that in no way will I be ashamed, but so now and always will Christ be magnified in my body through life and through death. See, it was only me putting him on the spot that caused him flubber. Because here's, here's the point. A life verse is something that has come to you at a particular time in your life, and it changes the direction of your life. So there's a lot of favorite scriptures. I got plenty of favorite scriptures. I know they can't see me online if I'm down there. Um, A lot of favorite scriptures, but there's sometimes God swings something in. It pops off the page at a very important time in your life. And the reason why you would call it a life verse is because the other times you hit needing life, God swings you right back around. You can have more than one. So my first is Matthew 6.33. I was 17. I was trying to figure out if God was going to be part of my life or if God was going to be my life. And I was in a hospital room. I was on the 10th floor at the University of Pennsylvania Hospital. I had my left leg and a cast from my, from my upper waist down to my ankle. I had a big window that was cut open at the knee. I had a staph infection in my knee. I had tried to come back too soon after surgery, tore nine internal sutures, and I almost lost my leg from the knee down. And it was in that hospital room that I said, okay, God, have my attention. What do you want to say? Now, I would have preferred him just talk to you, talk to me like, he's t- like I'm talking to you now, and that doesn't, he doesn't seem to be how he works all the time. And he, I really felt like when he said, well, start reading the Bible. Oh, well, that's a really good answer, God. Thank you. Start reading the Bible. There's only like, you know, it's big. So I just, I started in Matthew, and I didn't have to get too far. 633, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness And all these things, Charlie, that's been swimming in your head that you've been worrying about at 17, trying to make up your mind what's going on with life. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all those other things. They'll be added to you. And oddly enough, October 17th of the same year, I preached my first sermon. I have that written in another Bible. 
October 17, 1981. So that means, so I looked, when I was going through the sermon, I said, well, it's interesting. October 17, 1981 was my first sermon. I wonder what day October 17, 2021 is. You know what day it falls on? Sunday. You can't make this stuff up. So Sunday, October 17th, will be 40 years, 40, I know, I, I, I look really young for that, right? 40 years, I was seven at the time, right? 40 years of preaching the word. It's, it's been a life verse for me. And Psalm 42, our psalm today, is the other. Here's the context. i just gotten word that my mom had her second cancer diagnosis 10 years after she had beaten the first cancer. But it wasn't the same cancer metastasized, it was a different cancer. It was lung cancer. She was not given long to live. They didn't think the treatments were going to be very successful, although we were going to walk through them. And it was a particular Sunday morning. And if when someone you love is in that position, your day, your emotions are impacted by their day and their emotions. It was an early Sunday morning. I was leaving for church. I called, Mom, how are you doing today? She was not having a good day. So because she was not having a good day, I in turn wasn't having a good day. Now, I was a staff pastor. I didn't have a responsibility of preaching that Sunday. I'm sitting in the pews and the chairs like you're sitting there right now. But on the drive to church, I said, Lord, I have to have something from you today. I don't know if you've ever said that to God. I said it that Sunday. I have to have something from you today. So we go into service. I fully expected that to take place during worship. It didn't. I was so disappointed. I said, well, I guess there's no chance for that because you know the preacher don't bring no hope. <laughs> and then the pastor got up and he had everyone open their Bible to Psalm 42. I want you to see my Bible's page, Psalm 42. So that's my Bible. That's his Bible. And I've had it rebound when it fell apart because I didn't want to lose this page. So do you see the bottom down there? It says, you probably can't read it, but it says internal decision, external display, eternal dependence. Fact is, though, that's not my handwriting. Now, when I play ball, nobody borrowed my glove. When I preach, nobody borrows my Bible. And my mind saying, I said, who is that? I don't know that handwriting. That's not my handwriting. And I remembered. It was my pastor's handwriting. It was a Sunday night, you know, when they used to do church on Sunday night? Yeah, all that murmuring is the people going, thank God, pastor, you don't, <laughs> you don't do Sunday. Um, my pastor had a mind like a steel trap. He memorized everything. No, no, ever went to a pulpit, no Bible. He memorized, everything's memorized. He, he can quote the word like nobody's business. But on that Sunday night during worship, he asked to borrow my Bible. So what do you tell your boss when he asked to borrow your Bible? You say Yes. So I hand him my Bible. It's the same Bible. We have the same Bible. It was a, just an ultra-thin, large print, Broadman, Holman, NIV, nothing, nothing out of the ordinary, but we had the same Bible. And then he said, can I write in your Bible? Again, what do you say? What do you say? I said, yes, 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 you can write in my Bible. <laughs> Honestly, I don't remember a thing he said that night. I was just mad that he wrote in my Bible. That's not, <laughs> that's not true. So, so fast forward years later, I mean years later, Years later on a Sunday where I woke up and said, God, I have to have something from you today. I open up. Why are you downcast, oh my soul? Put your hope in God. Your Savior in God, that yet will I praise him, my Savior and my God. Well, I got, you know, he had my attention. 
And so pastor walks through Psalm 42, and that's what I want to do for you today. Listen, I've had my own knockdown, drag out war with self-talk. And so I know plenty of you do too. But I believe David teaches us here. I believe David opens his heart and soul to us to allow us what it is to struggle with hard. And it gives us He gives us insight in how he was walking through at the peak of his life in exile from the temple, in exile from his kingdom that God had had anointed and gave him to do, and he opens it wide open to us. So Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 is the same psalm. Psalm 43 would be um, the only psalm in your Bible that would not have a heading. In Hebrew, it was one psalm. And so it goes, it follows a specific pattern. Lament, and then hope. Lament, hope. Lament, hope. Lament, hope. There's a whole sermon just in that. You, you know, you don't, you, can't, you don't lament and move on. You don't lament once and the lament's gone. But I gotta tell you, If you don't stick some hope in there, you ain't going to leave your house. So here he starts out. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night. Why people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. David had been separated from temple worship, and he was as disheartened by being separated from temple worship as he was that someone was chasing after him to kill him. And he sits in this moment of being, he wasn't separated from God in his worship, but listen, very much so, right? In that culture and at that time, before the giving of the Spirit, that temple was the place. How about his words? My soul pants for God. That's next tier desperation. My soul pants for God. How about my tears have been my food day and night. That's next tier anguish. That's next tier desperation. And David, um, and, and to top it off, David is letting God know that in this middle time he has found himself, he's got people asking him, where's your God? And this is what I found I have found by experience that the goodness and the presence of God is often challenged in our self-talk in hard circumstances. When things are easy or going our way, oh, God's good. God is good. Oh, let me tell you a God story. And then when things are hard or against us, God must be absent or weak or unreliable. Listen, God can't be good and absent at the same time. God can't be wishy-washy and a rock and a refuge at the same time. He's one or the other. He can't be both. When we allow our present circumstances to undermine the historicity of God's loving action through Scripture and his loving action in our life, we let that self-talk lead us down a dark hole. What I love here is David is not leading himself down a dark hole. That's not what he's doing. 
but he is fighting through the emotions of hard. And he relies on his memories of entering into the courts with thanksgiving and praise. He, and, and with his, 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 his tribe, if you will, he lets those images and those memories kind of bring up this, this phrase. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? He's talking to himself. Put your hope in God. For I will yet, see, yet is a big word there. It's three letters, but he it is, is not discounting what's he's, what he's walking through. It, it, it's highlighting it, right? It's framing it. He, and yet will I praise him, my Savior, my God. For two consecutive weeks, Pastor, and it's funny, I got a sidebar. And I told Gina I was doing another lament. This is three laments in a row in Psalms. She said, I was kind of hoping on more. You know, I mean, it's Psalms, like when do we enter his courts with Thanksgiving? And I said, I, I don't know, maybe we'll get there, but I'm just going to lament some more. We told you, Harry and I walked you through the difference between a complainer and a lamenter. Here's some more uh, things to compare and contrast. When I'm complaining, when I'm complaining, I demand to be heard. When I'm complaining, I demand to be heard. When I'm complaining, I usually take an offensive posture. When I'm complaining, I believe that I'm the center of the universe. When I'm complaining, it means I want to be in control. And if I'm going to stay complaining, that means I'm going to throw a tantrum until I am in control. That's, that's the posture of complaining. Now, here's the posture of lamenting. Okay? A lamenter, when I'm lamenting, I want to be comforted. When I'm lamenting, I trust the person with whom I am lamenting to. When I'm lamenting, I'm not carrying an offended tone. Actually, I'm in a very yielded state. And so I know we can swing in and out of complaining and lamenting to God. And it's important to recognize the difference so that you know when you're complaining and when to stop it. That's my favorite counseling phrase, by the way, if you ever want counseling from me. Stop it. Every time I say that, it reduces my counseling load immensely. <laughs> complaining doesn't move the heart of God. Lamenting does. You know, when your kids throw a tantrum, what do you do? Hey, go over and sit in the corner. When you're ready to talk, we'll talk. Hey, go to your room. When you work through that enough for us to have a conversation, come on back in the room. Right? Because you can't, you can't talk. You can't talk to someone that's carrying on like that. And how many times have I carried on, carried on to the Lord? And he's just sitting there with his arms crossed. Hey, when you're done... And we can have a grown-up conversation. Let me know. And I'll be glad to work with you through this. So that's why I'm telling you that I think hope talk is an, it's, it's an internal decision, what Mark wrote on my, my Bible. It's when I decide that the word of God matters and my experience with God matters. And it's going to determine how I talk to myself, even in the face of myself's limitations. Listen, self-talk is a self-source pep rally. This is, I tell you all the time, this is an anti-self-help book. If you're, if you're looking for self-help, you will not find it here. You will not find it here. Because what this thing says is until you get to the end of yourself, you can never get to the beginning of God. Okay? So self-talk is an internal pep rally that can only take you as far as your self-talk can take you. Ah, but hope talk, hope talk is a whole different ballgame because it leans on the entire history of who God is and who he is with you. Now, David swings back into a lament, though. 
Verse 6 says, my soul is downcast within me. My soul is downcast within me. Well, but David, you just said, why, why are you downcast? Put your hope in God. It's because we don't, we don't ever finish lamenting in one pass. What I appreciate so much about scripture is it doesn't hide the wrestling of doubt and the emotions of God's people. David is not ignoring or denying his mental or emotional state. He's facing it. Can I help you here for a moment? Stuffing this stuff doesn't help you. Feeling like somehow that you're, you're, you're dishonoring God by your lament, you are not. You are not. I've told you before, though, you can get angry at God, but all it does is hurt you. Your anger with God ends up putting barriers between you and God. You got to get past that anger to start taking those down. But I can tell you that you're lamenting before the Lord. He, he already knows the state in which you're in. The only thing that happens when, it, when you stuff it is the people around you catch the abuse. Don't stuff it. But you have to then take control of those thoughts and those emotions. You have to walk those emotions and actions and make them to conform to the truth of God. Paul tells us that in 2 Corinthians 10.5. He said that we are to take thought every captive and make it obedient to Christ. What that means, that means some of my thoughts are not obedient to Christ. <laughs> and my self-talk is not in conjunction or in correlation to what God thinks of me, has created me to be, any of that stuff. These things can be opposed to one another. How many of you have used this phrase, I'm my own worst enemy? Guess what? You are not. We have a worst enemy. It's well documented. That's our enemy. And whatever he can plant, whatever he can pull out, whatever experience he can twist and turn, he will do that. But when I recognize the tone of that voice, the tone of the Father is kindness. It's gentle. Now, that doesn't mean that he doesn't get in my business and doesn't get in your business. But it's this kindness that leads to repentance. Not, not shame. Not self-loathing. And David understands this because he moves. He moves into the second half of verse 6. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, of Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. My soul was downcast, but I remember. I remember his love during the daytime and I remember his song at night. This isn't the first time this language is used in scripture. One of my favorite passages I learned out of the CLC men's group was in 2 Chronicles. It said the, 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 the Lord looks to and fro throughout the earth. You got, look at there. I didn't even have it in the notes and they put it up there. Man, that's good stuff right there. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. For some reason, I have said that as a, I've learned that as a daytime verse. I don't know why, but when I read that verse, that's a daytime verse. That he is, look, is my heart, if my heart is steadfast after him, he's looking around for me. He's looking around. Oh, there he is. There she is. There's Tyler. Yeah, I'm going to strengthen him today. Daytime verse. And this idea of him singing over us at night, that's not a new passage of scripture here. We can read it in Zephaniah and another psalm. He sings over us. What does singing over us do? It, it calms you. I mean, this is, this is where the concept of lullabies 
come from. We sing lullabies at night to our kids, right? We want, we're settling them. We want them to feel secure, loved, right? And so at night, David's saying, my soul is downcast, but I'm going to remember the days when you strengthened me. I'm going to remember the chorus and the lyric when you comfort me when, I, when my tears have been my food day and night. I said this in one sermon recently. I said, Here, here's our history of God. If you don't have enough personal history with God, then borrow some from someone else for a little while till you build your own file. But build your own file. And see, that's what a life verse was to me. Hey, Matthew 6, that started my file. Years, decades, decades later, three decades later, two decades later, I added Psalm 42. There's other stuff in between, but I keep cycling back to those because those were crucial. And I prayed today. I prayed last night. I've prayed since Wednesday. Someone would leave the room today, turn off the broadcast today, and Psalm 42 would be that answer that you asked for. David isn't finished with his lament, though. Verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Let that settle in. Why have you forgotten me? Have you, have you felt forgotten before? You know what forgotten feels like? It feels like you're anonymous. It feels like no one knows your name. Why must I go about mourning? God, you can take care of this in the snap of a finger. Why aren't you snapping your finger? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? But don't discount how David gets into this last lament. I say to God, my rock. I say to God, my rock. That's, makes, that, that's what makes this a lament. I feel this way but I'm going to the God, my rock. I'm not going to discount who I'm going to. It's God, my rock. He hasn't lost perspective of who God is in the midst of really wrestling with God's actions. I preached a message series a long time ago I called Hope in Empty Places. In that series, I described hope as an anchor. I described empty as an illusion. And I did that because when you read Genesis 1, when it says God created God created the heaven and earth, and the, and the earth was empty, right? It was void. So if God created empty, that means God precedes empty, which means empty is always just an illusion because he's the one who had to even create empty. And I said, forgotten is a delusion. It is a major tool of the enemy to tell us that we are forgotten in it, in, in it on our own no one knows, no one cares, no one understands. That, that is, that is, those are lies of the enemy. At least five specific times in Scripture, the exact phrase says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Five different times, that language. Plenty of times where it implies that, but five times in that language, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Forgotten is a delusion. Then he ends with verse 11. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. And then we swing into Psalm 43 with his last lament. Verse 
Vindicate me, my God, and plead my cause against any unfaithful nation. Rescue me from those who are deceitful and wicked. Now, see, he's not saying, God, this is how I need you to do this. But it's okay to tell God, God, I, 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 I need some vindication here. Vindicate me, my God. Plead my cause against the unfaithful nation. Rescue me from those who are deceitful and wicked. You are God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? What a juxtaposition, just, just however you say that word. Of God, my stronghold, I hide in you. That's what a stronghold is. You're my refuge, my strength, my rock. I hide in you. I'm hiding in you now. I'm hiding you with it, in this prayer. I'm hiding you in, in, with it, in this lament. I, I trust you with this lament. Why have you forsaken me? Why, um, why must I go mourning and oppressed by the enemy? Send me your light and your faithful care. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Then I will go to the altar of God, to my God, my joy, my delight. I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. And he ends that vindicate me, God, with another verse five. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him. I think one of the things the Psalms, this psalm teaches us that a downcast soul inevitably will be a part of our life. Flirting with the feeling that you've been forgotten by God comes with hardship. It just does. However, those feelings do not cancel out the true nature of God. I know in our culture we've elevated feelings to truth. We've said that if I feel it, then it matters. Well, exactly. That's true. If you feel it, it does matter. But it doesn't make it the truth. It makes it real, but it doesn't make it true. Feelings lie to you and me all the time. They're real. You feel them, they impact you, but they're not truth. So if they're not truth, then they don't hold sway, and they should not hold sway of the way we talk to ourselves or allow the enemy talk to ourselves. We have to stand in the hope of Christ. Where is your God isn't just a, a Western question. It's not just a, an American question. It's a history question. <laughs> Throughout all of history, when things have gone wrong, people have said, where is God? It's not a modern phenomenon. God's the same place. And we not, might not be able to reconcile how, and how God works and when he works and why he works. But you know what? Well, I've come to the conclusion a long time ago. If I can figure out God, he's probably not God. And I sure want somebody smarter than me if they're going to hold that title. So, a better test of God's goodness to me is where is he in hardship? So that Sunday, I couldn't wait for the time in the altar when pastor gave us an opportunity to move and come to the altar. Man, I was, I was lickety split. I was in the altar. And just as I've heard, heard God clearly, I heard him clearly that day when he spoke to me and he said, my grace is sufficient. Now, now listen, I immediately thought, you're going to heal my mom. I, said, I think I said it out loud. And just as quickly, God told me that's not what I said. I said, my grace is sufficient. And then my mind kicked in, and I remembered the back half of that verse. 
for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And mom did, in fact, die. But I've never been the same since. And in fact, my pastor grabbed me by the neck one day, and I didn't know where this was coming from. I was still in the throes of grief. He said, you'll never be the same pastor again. And I just, you know, thanks. And I haven't been. I haven't been. You can call it growing up. You can call it a lot of different things. But what it was is I'd walk through a hardship with the presence and strength of God. Because one of the things he taught me is Matthew 16, 33. In this world, you'll have trouble. But take heart. I've overcome the world. He didn't say, take heart, I've overcome the trouble. Because if it was take heart, I've overcome the trouble, then he has to continue to come back to new trouble and take care of it. What he did was he took care of the source of trouble. Because although it is hard to see a loved one pass, what we know by faith, if they're in the Lord, that to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. And with the last breath here, there was a new breath in heaven. See, he, 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 overcome, he overcame that heart at its most base level. So, so, how do you, so I started, you know, all the messages, I try to go, okay, how in the world do I give anybody any handles for this? And so, so here's where I want to begin on this eternal decision. So Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8 says, or Matthew chapter 11, 28 through 30, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You want to know where God is in hardship. He's, he's close enough for us to hear him. See, that's a different way to say it, because a lot of times we'll say, he's close enough to hear me. We're close enough to him that we can hear him. The come to me is a, it's an offer. Come to me. He's saying that to you today. Hey, come, come, come to me. But it's interesting, what he says is, take, on, take my yoke. It's an agricultural, it's a, it's, a, it's a farming implement, right? When you would put an experienced ox next to a younger, less experienced ox. And initially, I mean, what the intent of the yoke was to harness the, 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 the power of both these oxen in order to do the field, right? To plow the field, to carry the cart, whatever. But at first, I would imagine the young ox wanted to do his own thing. No, you don't know what to do. You don't know how to do this. You don't understand the situation. And I can see just the stillness of this old ox. Like when you're done, can we get on with this? And as the young ox would take his step and her step from the cues of the lead ox, they would get more work done. It would get done in an easier fashion and a faster amount of time. When I, when I stop trying to do it my way and I take lead 
take my yoke. Don't allow, don't, don't yoke yourself to, to the culture that's gonna have you running in circles. Get in step with me. Get in step with my ways. Get in step with my will. Get, way. Get, get in step in my will. Get in step with my word. Come and step with me. Because you know what? It's, it's an easy burden. This, I'm, I'm gentle. Come, come along with me. All you are he- weary and heavy laden, take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy. My burden's light. Come on. I've, I've walked this path before you were born. That's why he's, a, he's our suffering servant as much as he is our triumphant king been down this road before. I've been on my knees before my father three times saying, isn't there another option? Come on, I got you. Peter then tells us, he says, cast your anxiety on him. Why? Because he can handle it, because he's got broad shoulders. It says, cast your care on him because he cares for you. So the answer is yes, all the above. Yeah, he's got big shoulders. Yeah, he's strong. But his motivation is that he cares for you. That means, listen, when he he enters into um, Bethany and Lazarus is dead, don't you believe as Lazarus is dying, Lazarus is going, where's Jesus? I thought we were friends. Why do you say that, Pastor? Because Mary and Martha... Mary and Martha are basically projecting that. Where were you, Lord? If you were here, my brother wouldn't have died. They had complete confidence in him being able to heal him. And Jesus is having to teach them about resurrection. But the the, the most powerful verse of scripture that I can find is two words. Jesus wept. He didn't say, hey, hold on over there. Just tamp it down. I'm going to get to that. Just come follow me. He doesn't do that. Says he cried with them. He sat, even though he knew he was going to resurrect Lazarus, he sat in their own grief. Yeah, we serve a powerful God, but that power would be insignificant if he wasn't present. He is a present God. So we make an internal decision. That's the one that's the God I'm going to trust. I'm trusting that God. I know everything else around me makes me go, where are you? But I'm, a, I'm making a decision that God's history, my personal history with him, right? Whenever you go through hardship, it's amazing. We hit reset. We forget all the stuff, that all the things God had done. We just kind of, what, you know, what have you done for me lately becomes, becomes our default. We take our own history, God's history, the history of other brothers and sisters in Christ and make that internal decision. All right, but now... Now we have to um, now we have to walk that out. It has to be dis- displayed externally, because if we're walking around as fo- I'm just telling you, as followers of Christ, the best display of God's power in your life, the best frame is when you're walking through hard. And when people ask you where is your God, you can tell me it was the same place before this stuff happened. And let's stop carrying ourselves around like we have the weight on the world on our shoulders that is de- denying that there is the weight of the world out there but we don't have to carry that weight by ourselves by carrying that weight with us so I called it like yoke up um, cast off 
and praise on. Because I'm to, 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 to make this an eternal display, okay, God, where's your way? Where's your will? I'm gonna walk with you. I'm gonna cast off. And how many of you know, you don't cast it off one time and it's gone. Anybody with me? It's, it's a process. I cast it off and boy, before you know it, I've picked the thing back up without even really knowing it. Cast it off, cast it off. But I love, I love David says, yet will I praise you, my Savior and my God. Keep praising. Keep praising. And then that eternal dependency he was talking about, that's what I'm going to anchor in. I'm not going to allow, I'm not going to allow my circumstances to reign over me long, longer than I have to. So today is one of those no longer than you have to. So I don't know how you talk to yourself. I don't know if you find yourself in the throes of something right now. I, I don't know. But as we end every service, you, you have an opportunity to respond. And I even had to come back at the second service and say, some of you have talked yourself out of responding. And then people came. So don't make me do that to you. I tell you, I always tell you that movement matters. What, what is God wanting to move in you? You can come and receive communion. You can get the communion pack. You can receive it in the altar. You can go back in your seat. You can come forward. If you want to come forward for prayer, you want someone to pray with you, our elders, other pastoral staff will pray with you. But I encourage you not to just let things rattle in your head in this next few moments and not do something about them. And we will worship together before the benediction. Stand for prayer, please. Father, I pray that your voice is the loudest voice in the room. That no matter whatever, what other thoughts are circling, may you be loud and clear, moving us towards you in the name of Jesus. Amen. We hope you were encouraged and challenged by today's message. Again, to learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, find us online at gatewayfranklin.com. Thanks for joining us today.